0: Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at RedeemerQP.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks Let's listen to the next episode. Welcome to those that have already been given into uh, the Easter season. And the Easter season, like we mentioned last week, is traditionally that time when the church turns inward. To answer a very important question, why do I need a Savior? That's what the season leading up to Easter is traditionally about. It's a season called Lent. And here at Redeemer, we're spending the, the Lenten season considering the life of the emotions, these responses to reality we all carry around. season of considering depression, anxiety, fear, anger, grief, shame, and joy in the next couple of weeks. It's also a season of inviting people around as well. Here in this last week, going through streets, walking down halls, knocking on doors, praying prayers, connecting with people for the very first time and If uh, if you're here uh, for the first time this week because someone from, from our team made contact with you last week, welcome. I'm very glad to have you. There's so much to say, so let's just get right to saying it. Think about the emotions. The emotions are instinctive, and that is a good thing. You ever wondered, why can I not control my emotions? You ever had a time, ever had a place When you hated how you feel, but no matter how much you felt it, you couldn't do anything about it? Anyone familiar with this? Anyone that knows what it's like to be trapped in depression or anxiety in particular, know what it feels like to be trapped in an emotion? But why is this? Why is it? Why do we so often feel like our emotions control us instead of we control them? The answer to that, in part, is because our emotions are instinctive, and that's a good thing. Rather than selecting our emotions off a menu about how we're going to feel about God and how we're going to feel about one another, God gave us emotions that are actually designed not to change unless the object of our love changes or unless the object of our love is effective. Now, this is counterintuitive, so let's slow down and think about it. Our emotions, these different things we feel, they instinctively flow out of our lives rather than resulting from conscious choices. Well, let, me, let me prove it to you. Imagine you have a friend and you've been trying to get them to get hired up at the place where you work because, I mean, how awesome would that be? Like, then you can kind of like maybe even commute to the office together. You could go on lunch breaks together. You could hang around after work together. You could do all of the things together. And you've been maybe praying for your friend. You've been hoping your friend's going to be able to land the job with you where you're at. So you can have all of that together, together. Then one day you get the call. The person got the job and she's, she's coming. And you don't have to think in that moment how you feel. No, you've been hoping for this. You've been looking forward to this. You've been expecting this. So when the call comes, when the text dings, you don't have to think. You're excited. You're like really excited. You don't have to consider like, hmm, hold on, hold on. How should I feel about this right now? No, we have this instinctive reaction to information because emo- our emotions are instinctive. And that is a good thing. Consider how awkward, consider how inappropriate it would even be if you had to take time to pause to consider where you're at and how you feel about your friend getting hired so you could have all that together time together. That would actually be incredibly strange if you had to figure out or if you had to decide how you felt about it. The point is that it's normal and appropriate for our emotions to come right away. That's a good thing. God didn't make our emotions to be necessarily this thing that we need to switch off. No, to deal with the emotions, we actually have to go deeper. Consider how this is also true. Imagine you get a call in the middle of the night, and calls in the middle of the night are never good things. And you find out that someone you love has actually been injured, and they're in great trouble and great difficulty. Consider how the anger and how the fear, perhaps anxiety and the fear that you feel in that moment, How it actually drives you, and it's actually good. How inappropriate would it be? How awkward, how strange would it actually be? If you get the call that a loved one is in great difficulty, they're being rushed to hospital, and you've been asked to come in because this could be the last time you're going to get to see the person, you don't have to think. You simply respond. How how actually inappropriate would it be if you had to sit down and say, hmm, let me think. Where do I want to be with this? How do I want to feel? No, no, no. It would be the fear and the anxiety that leads you to throw the sweats on, call an Uber or hop on the bus and get down there. And that is a good thing. In such situations, it's actually our emotions that motivate us to respond. The point is that emotions flow out of what we care about most. Do you catch this? Our emotions flow out of what we care about most. And our emotions shouldn't change apart from the things we care about the most actually changing. So you want to change your emotions? We have to actually change the object of our loves. We have to change the object of our desires. Maybe we don't even have to find a new thing, but we have to find a way to love the thing that we love. The point is that we don't need new feelings. We actually need new loves. And to get new loves, we have to get new hearts. This is what we're into. Now, Andrew just read it for us in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. You see it right there at the end. For the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. So according to Jesus, the things that come out of our mouth, that's what's filling up our hearts. So when your friend lands the job, you don't have to think. You've been looking forward to it. You've been wanting it. You've been anticipating it. You've been working your side of that deal. So when the news lands, this is great. This is what we were hoping for. And you respond. And when someone you love is in threat or under trouble, you feel heartache, you feel panic because something you love has been threatened and you rightly respond. Proverbs 4:23 says above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So everything, the lives we live, the emotions we feel, they come from the heart we have. So when you think about it, we actually don't need new feelings, we need new loves. In order to get new loves, we need new hearts. Is there any hope? Is there any hope to being able to love something different? Being able to love the idea of something different? Being able to love a person different? There is hope. That's why we're into this. And that's why we're drilling down into these emotions each and every week. But as we talk about them, we're not talking about emotions. We're talking about those desires beneath the emotions. We're talking about those loves underneath the emotions. We're talking about our very hearts. Our biggest need is to have a new heart that will give us new loves, that will reorient the desires and the worship of our lives. And as that happens, over time in our lives, we'll start feeling different about things as we actually feel different about things. So let's consider one very complex emotion that proves the point that's being made so far, the emotion of envy. It's a weird word. In all the known languages of the world, um, psychotherapists and psychologists agree that every language has this word in it. It's not isolated to a particular culture. It's not isolated to a particular time and place. Study the history books. You can see the history of envy. It's such a poorly understood word and such a poorly understood concept, probably because it has such a powerful spiritual connotation to it. It's a word that holds so much energy. The word holds so much mystery, and yet it holds so much threat. It's part of the reason we need to look at it together today. You didn't come to hear pop psychology. You certainly didn't come to hear what I've been able to study in a couple of weeks on it. You came to hear God's word, the Bible, so let's dig into it. Psalm 37 the author is dealing with envy. You see it right there at the very first word. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. So what follows is going to be what this person ought to be up to instead of being envious. But if we could almost ask and answer three questions around this, I think we could get a feel for what envy is. First, we'll consider what envy is. Second, we'll consider how envy works. And third, we'll consider how to overcome it. First things first, what is envy? Envy is wanting what someone else has. You know this to be true. In verse one, do not fret do not envy evildoers. You have a righteous person living a life of faith. He sees someone who doesn't love his God. He sees someone who doesn't worship his God. He sees someone's living life another way, and he sees that person, and he feels, I kind of want some of that. I think we've all felt this. Every follower of Jesus knows what it's like to feel this. He sees a person and feels, I want that, not even that, but I wish they didn't have it. Psalm chapter 73. You can remember the two Psalms on envy because you just flipped the numbers. 37 here, 73 there. Psalm 73 verse 3 says, I envied the arrogant. This person of God envied the prosperity of an arrogant person. And there he actually lists out the things that he envied. They're things that we feel and things we envy today as well. In Psalm 73, he basically, he envied their great-looking bodies, looking at people whose bodies were healthy and sleek. That's in the Bible. <laughs> he envied their great wealth. They increased in wealth, and he envied that. So he envied their bodies, he envied their wealth, and he's also able to say he envied their charmed life. It did not, they did not seem to be plagued by the ills of, that are common to humanity. And this person looked at them, it's like, man... You got a good body. You got a good bank account. You don't face the obstacles I face. I want that life. And that's what envy is. Envy is wanting someone else's life. Envy's wanting what someone else has. And we feel this so strongly that means that we rejoice when they weep. And we weep When they rejoice, you want it that bad. You want it that strong. Envy is being unhappy at other people's happiness. And envy is weeping because other people are rejoicing. How do you know you have envy? The person kind of ahead of you, or the person that you're looking to, or the person that oddly enough in envy that you actually look up to, when they fall, you're happy. Happy at other people's unhappiness. Unhappy at other people's happiest. It's like the the actor in the West End here, John Gielgud, when Sir Lawrence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948. He said, when the critics raved for him, I wept. That's envy. Can't handle the happiness of someone else or something else. It's envy. Being happy at other people's unhappiness. Being unhappy at other people's happiness. Seeing another life and saying, I want that. And going further to say, and I actually resent that person because they have it and I don't. When you think about it, envy is inherent with pride. Envy looks at the world, assumes everything is about me, everything's about mine, everything's about how it's going here. and Reads the whole world through a lens of pride. See something going well? Not okay with that. That should be mine. That's what envy says. That's what we see the person dealing with. Psalm 37, verse 1, Psalm 73, verse 3. This is what the Bible says it's an envious person. Well, that's what it is. How does it work? How does it work? That's the second thing we need to consider. Look back into your Bible. Consider the psalmist compares his situation with the situation of an evildoer. And that is how envy works envy feeds on comparisons you want to take away envy take away comparisons you want to cut envy off cut the comparisons out envy feeds on comparisons it's comparisons that lead us in pride to look around our world to see other men to see other women to see other people to see another church to see another organization to see another football team perhaps and we look around and we say i want that why do we say this it's because we compare. Let me show you the two the two reasons we prepare. First socially and then biblically. Socially, we compare ourselves we compare ourselves to people that we are most like. There's a there's a Jewish Old Testament theologian. Um, I have no idea how to say this name. I think it's Benzev or Benzev. There's somebody you could probably say it more sophisticated than that. But he describes these two big components of social comparison that we actually learn from the Bible he says we actually compare ourselves first with people who we have similarities with in background, education, age, place, time, and opportunities. So if you have a lot in common with somebody in those categories, you're going to find yourself comparing your life to theirs. The other factor that really drives comparison is our current position. People that we have the same status as, people that we kind of have the same salary as, people that we kind of have the same possessions of, Those are the people we're gonna envy. And I can tell you this is true from my life, right? Being a 36-year-old man, I've always been the same age of two people, right? LeBron James and Michael Phelps, okay? (laughs) But it's amazing how I don't spend my life envying LeBron James. Because LeBron and I, though we're both the same age, if I could be on a first name basis, we actually don't have that much in common. Namely, his incredible good looks and his athletic prowess. But I tell you who I will envy. Somebody that's kind of from where I'm from. Somebody that kind of grew up how I grew up. Somebody kind of went to school where I went to school. Somebody that's kind of been trained where I've been trained. Somebody kind of about the business I'm about. Oh, if you knew the things in here. And I don't think we're any different. I think we all got this so think about it when people find other people who were like us we actually just start comparing ourselves with them and that comparison is what fuels envy it's actually the poison in our relationships so think about it we don't envy bill gates we don't envy his wealth but we do envy someone that's kind of like us that makes 20k more than we do you ever notice that No one sits around fuming and gossiping about Bill Gates, but we're ticked at a a colleague, we're ticked at a coworker or friend that managed to do better than we. Weekend warrior on the golf course isn't mad that Tiger Woods would beat him by 30 shots, but if your weekend warrior beats you by two, you're fuming. A single woman isn't mad that Dua Lipa has 80.5 million followers on Instagram, but somebody from her same age, stage, and background gets 80 more likes than she does? She's ticked. And this is how our hearts work. Envy thrives on comparisons. And we envy our relationships with one another. We envy the circumstances of one another, and we envy the the possessions of, of one another. We envy because we compare. And when we envy, we actually don't grow closer together. We grow further apart. Here are the sorts of comparisons we make. We make relational comparisons. It's like we're going for more, we're going for more. We see a social media post again from another event that you weren't invited to, and you think to yourself, why wasn't I there? I deserve to be in that. And we envy. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you want to be married. You see another friend that went on, and somehow that friend's getting married, and you think to yourself, I'm better looking than she is. I'm in the gym more than him. (laughs) And we say these things, and we envy. We play the but-I games. By the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married, and there's certainly nothing wrong with grieving that you're not married. But there is something wrong with envy. And there is something wrong with looking at other men and looking at other women that are in a different life position and resenting them because of how God has chosen to work in their lives. There is something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with desiring relationship. There's nothing wrong with having to do that grief of wishing it was your time yet. But there is something wrong with resenting other people or even feeling miserably sorry for ourselves because God doesn't have us there yet. And it goes, you see a neighbor's house, maybe they're getting the works done. You see a chair, you see a car, you see shoes, you see trainers, you see a jacket, and you think, I want it. And what we're actually saying there is, I should have had it. Relational comparisons. Think of all the circumstantial comparisons. Look around, you see somebody else's life situation, and we think, I wish I had that. You want to have a spouse, and you don't. You resent that the, you resent that you want to have a baby and you don't and you envy you want to have children who behave and they don't and you envy speaking from experience <laughs> you want to be friends with someone you're not and you envy and then we get on social media and it is just the feeding ground for comparisons and I'm not bearing down on anybody I'm probably on there more than you but this is what happens we look at others lives and we're looking at a filtered highlight reel of their existence and we know the rubbish that goes on in our own situations off in the back rooms and off in the back door and we're wondering to ourselves, they got it so good and we compare and we compare and we envy and we're actually not growing closer together we're drifting further apart comparing our behind the scenes footage with the highlight reels they gloss up so so well Never in the never before in the history of the world has it ever been so easy to seemingly assess the popularity of a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. Got a blue check? Got 500 followers? Got a thousand? How many? How many likes? Others have joked it should be called Envygram. You could call it in your Facebook. The opportunities for envy abound. Friends get married, you don't get married. You know the friend for a long time, you're better off and you think that should have been you. You have a child that's chronically ill and chronically sick and you're frustrated that they always—they don't have to break their day nights, they don't have to break their plans, they just get to go and you're stuck at home with this. A friend plays in the lucky dip and that one is a really bad scoundrel like he shouldn't have been doing anyways, but then he's going to hit the lottery and you're going to look at him and say, that should have been me all along. We do this. We do this in a million ways. We do this. We think others are better looking, more fashionable than ourselves, yet it's God in heaven that gave each of us these looks, and He gave each of us this sense of fashion and style, yet we walk around hating ourselves and being so upset with ourselves because this is who God made us to be. Bible clearly teaches that we should not envy. Psalm 37, verse 1, Proverbs 23, verse 17, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. And scripture leads us to consider not only what we want, but who we want it for. Oh, and there, there it is. We find ourselves looking at somebody else's situation and saying, Well, I should have some of that. Why well, do we want it? We want it so we can feel different? we want it for God's glory? Biblically, we envy because we have bad hearts that love the wrong things the wrong ways. In the span of one generation, anger and envy provoked Adam's and Eve's first son Cain to murder off his brother Abel. Jesus says it like this in Mark 7, verses 20-23. to What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is within them, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. It's from inside a person. This stuff isn't out there. The enemy is not out there. It's right here. Comes sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. According to Jesus, all of these evils come from inside a person. And they're what defile a person. We compare our ourselves when our hearts are focused on one another. So the solution. A solution then is we actually have to find a better focus for our hearts. Half-brother Jesus, James, said in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his heart's desires. Those desires go on and give birth to sin. And when sin has its run on us, there's death. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Greed, sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, and wrath. And what's fascinating about envy amongst all seven Envy is probably the most embarrassing to admit. What, what, what about the other ones? Wouldn't it be nice to take a spin with? Oh, greed? Yeah, I mean, just a little more. Taking it easy, sloth, pride, feeling strong about yourself, gluttony, eating a lot, drinking a lot, lust, meeting your desires, wrath, really taking it out on somebody. Oh, but envy. There's one we actually, we actually feel a threat with this. Sin is a parasite on God's good creation. A sinful emotion here. It contains a corrupted, it, 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 though it's corrupted, it contains at its core part of good creation. Envy in us might actually have its, its roots in an unfair treatment from childhood. And that actually just grows up with us in an interesting way. What does envy do inside of us? One clinical psychologist has said if envy were an illness, the world would be a hospital. We think of envy as kind of petty jealousy. We even hear this. Like, this was, this was my experience. This was some of ours this week as we got around this word to look at it in community group. We hear about this and we get around earlier in the week and we're like, okay, and I hate that somebody else is dealing with envy, but I'm feeling all right. Let's get into this. And we're kind of all walking out of community like, oh man, it's me. The Bible treats it as something that's serious. Numbers chapter 11, verse 6 describes the people of God's coming to envy. Literally, the Hebrew word says, it says, our souls were dried up in the English. And the word soul in Hebrew means life force. You think about what envy did in Numbers chapter 11, verse 6. Comparison and envy dried up the Israelites' soul force on their trek through the wilderness. Proverbs comes along and confirms this and says, Jealousy is a rottenness to the bones. Envy poisons our hearts envy can be like a poison between us with one another in relationship it doesn't build community it blocks community it's horrible and we need it addressed with we need it addressed and we need it to be dealt with so let's review and then we'll find a solution what is it it's wanting someone else's life i see your situation so much pride you just say that should be mine not yours And I resent that you have it. How do we have it? Fueled by comparisons, the fruit of dead hearts that dries up our life force inside of us and it leaves us feeling as if we have rotten bones inside. So how to overcome it? What can we do with this? How can we get beyond it? We can feel it. We're aware. So where are we going to go from here? If we know this is us, if you feel like a marked person right now like I do, What's the hope? Where can we go? What could ever be done for our envious hearts? You think about what's going on in Psalm chapter 37. You see strategies for overcoming envy. You actually see verbs that mark the beginning of these next few verses. These become the action points that we can involve ourselves in. See, the first thing we are to do in verse 3 is to trust. Next thing we're to do in verse 4 is to delight. Next thing we're to do in verse 5 is to commit. Then we trust again in the second half of verse 5. So we fight envy at the root level of our heart's desires because our emotions are instinctive. There's no going to be looking at our hearts and just saying, stop that. Where I actually have to love things differently. This doesn't mean like your desire for a spouse needs to go away. This might mean it needs to be tempered. This doesn't mean our security with where we are socioeconomically needs to change, but it does mean we actually might need to trust God more while we still have our hopes, dreams, and ambitions in this life. So it's not like, oh no, God's going like to take my desires away. No, no, no. He might actually leave those desires there better. He might actually give us better desires to be about and to have. But the promise of God's Word is that He'll, del- that he'll actually deliver us through this. The goal of David in Psalm chapter 37 was to feed on the faithfulness of God. And that was the hope for helping the emotions that he felt in his life. It's a promise and a command to dwell in the land and to enjoy security. A promise and a command. Envy has at its root this idea God hasn't been good to me. We think he's missed, we think he's forgotten. We think He's lost the script. So we have these emotions that come up inside of us. And we start shot-calling on His creation, demanding that things be ours. And as we begin to envy, we start looking at someone or something and resenting what they have. And we're beginning to lose our peace and lose our contentment with God because the root issue here is what we worship or who we worship. So how about five strategies for overcoming envy from Psalm 37? We'll roll instead of envy take the long view instead of all that instead of carrying on with this in our spirits verse 2 says let's take the long view the first encouragement is to see those people that you envy specifically a righteous person envying a wicked person and that's relevant in this room we can feel some of this the first thing to do in that specific situation is to take a long view yeah it looks nice really nice now but that person's going to fade like the grass. First John chapter 2, verse 15, for those who do the will of God will abide forever. The same truth is given in Psalm chapter 37, verse 9, for the wicked shall be cut off like the grass, but those who wait on the Lord will possess the land. You see it again in verse 10, a little while and the wicked will be no more. So Christian, very practically in your heart, We can fight envy. We can overcome envy in part by first taking the long view. Envy is such a short-sighted thing, isn't it? We're in a moment. We just need a fix. We just need a relief. We just need to get through the next week. We just need to get through the next month. We just need to find our way through the next year. But there's something about overcoming envy when we actually take the long view. We realize where are these two different trajectories? They may look very similar now, but where are they actually going to end up in the end? And we take the long view. Friend, don't let envy get the upper hand in your heart when you see an unbeliever or an unrighteous person. They're eventually going to be cut down like the grass. They will fade and they will be gone. Do not let that overcome your heart. Take the long view on that, Christian. Take the long view. Next, this is in all sorts of envy. Instead of envy, trusting God, you See it in verse three. Remember, our emotions, they're the instinctive responses of our hearts. Envy springs from a heart that's not rooted in God. It's not resting in God. It's not settled in God. You could almost even think of envy as something of a spectrum. And on one very positive end of the emotion is the ability to look at somebody's life and actually rejoice with them and to be happy for them. That's great. I'm glad you got the promotion. I'm glad you got the relationship. I'm glad you got the postcode. I'm glad you got the trainers. I'm glad you got that device. I'm glad you got that. Wait, 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 wait. On the other end of the spectrum is wishing it was us and resenting our friends that they have it too. So we can battle the envy in our hearts by trusting in God. Whenever we envy, it's always a good heart check. Am I rooted? Am I rested? Am I settled in God? Or has something happened? Has an okay desire in my life become a bit blown up and inflated and now I'm desiring the wrong thing the wrong way? It doesn't mean relationships are bad to desire. It just means they shouldn't be the biggest desire. And we can shape this over time by trusting in God. We open with this in our call to worship in Psalm 73. We go back to it. We listened to how he was encouraging his envious heart to trust in God. Last week we considered Martin Lloyd Jones, Psalm 42. We got to speak the gospel to ourselves. We have to speak the gospel to ourselves when it comes to envy as well. We got to speak to our souls. You guide me, God, with your counsel, and afterwards you're going to take me into glory. You see the long view? I'm not living for the here and now, I'm in it for eternity. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on the earth has no one I desire. You hear that word again in a bigger way? No one I desire besides you. There it is. His heart love. His heart longing. The one his soul was anchored onto. Oh, there it is. Reaffirm that. Trust in God. And there's the experience. You can feel it. You can testify to this. I can testify to this with my envy. My flesh and my heart may fail But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Trusting God. Christian, very practically, we can overcome the envy in our lives by the grace of God and for the glory of God by trusting in God. As he gives us space, even as you can hear it right now, we can actually be healed of our envy in degrees, and we can be transformed in degrees on the spot today, trusting God. Third, instead of envy, worship God. In verse 4, it's amazing. Envy, Envy usually arises from not having the specific desires in our hearts. And the key here is trusting God. Trusting God sufficiently. Trusting in God in such a way where it comes home to rule in our hearts that He is for us, He has not forgotten us, and He will take care of us. This isn't blind believism though. This isn't just telling your emotions to stop. This is getting beneath the issue. This is having to ask and answer some important questions right now. Am I trusting in God or am I trusting in something else? Am I hoping in God or am I hoping in something else? And after we've identified the object of our worship, we worship. This is why what happens right here in this space of the room is these wonderful people lead us in song. We are actually doing work on our hearts. We're telling our hearts all week long you've wanted the other stuff. All week long you've hoped in the different people. Today, remember heart, it's about Him. And we worship. Romans 8.32, if He did not spare His own Son but freely gave Him up for us all, how will He not only with the Son freely give us all things? The Bible makes staggering promises that God is for us and He will meet us there in the end. But our worship is so important. This is about our worship. This is about our loves. This is about the desires of our hearts. We envy those people that worship the things that we want the most. Think about it. If you want to understand what you worship, follow what you envy. If you love popularity and prestige, you're envious of those who have more friends and influence than you. If you love thinking of yourself as the perfect mom or the perfect homemaker, then you're going to find yourself envying mothers that seem to be doing better than you. If you worship the idea of being happily married and then, or, ha- then, or having a boyfriend, then what you'll find yourself doing is being envious of people who have one or you're always on the lookout for relationships that might lead you to one. If you idolize family stability, you'll envy people that look like they got it going on more than you. If we want to understand what we worship, just pay attention to what we envy. They lead us to the source. Our emotions are here to help us see what we worship, realize what we worship, recognize when we're off, and to come back home to God. This is what we're in it for. So we don't need to change our emotions. We need to change the objects of our worship. We need to change the objects of our hearts, our our hopes, our dreams, and our desires. Fourth, and I'm going to hurry up. Instead of envy, commit your life to God. You see it again from verse 2. The vindication. The verse teaches that God works on behalf of those who wait on Him. The word vindication is especially important for us because it's this catch-all term. Because when we're envying, there's this implicit thing happening in our hearts. God's forgotten about me. The The unrighteous are having a better go of it than me. And someone needs to stand up and say, I'm not making a mistake. And the word is to commit your life to God because in the end, God will vindicate you. In the end, he will make your righteous reward shine in noonday. That's a battle in the heart. We have to go back to our hearts. We have to bring our hearts back to it. Fifth and finally, Gil, come on, the down payment that we're almost through this. Here he is. Instead of envy, desire more. Instead of envy, desire God. Think about what's going on with our desires. The emotion of envy is actually a really helpful signal to us. It's the signal that we can look around and we can actually tell in that moment of envy we don't have it all sorted. We don't have it all figured out. Whenever we look at someone else, their body, their life, their situation, we realize there's a ways to go still. What if... It's actually not that we desire other people that's the problem. What if there's actually more to our desire than we realize? What are we to do with these desires? Are we just to stop desiring? Great help coming in from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this, Christians are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Our envy testifies this. Our envy's reminding us of this. Yeah, we're hungry for a little more of this. We're hungry for a little more of that. We're hungry for just a little bit of an upgrade. But what's going on in all of that? Our envies is actually a massive signpost in our spirits pointing us up and out of here to a world that's to come. The problem in our lives is not desire per se. The problem in our lives is that we're not desiring enough. From the weight of glory, Lewis says in another place, this is my favorite. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and those those of staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem then that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. The problem with our envy is that we are far too easily pleased. Rather than mistaking the mud pies for the holiday, We choose the best way to pleasure. We choose the maximum way to pleasure. We choose to rejoice in God. Envy's a mud pie. What are the mud pies in this room? Is it money? You'll never have enough in your bank account to satisfy. Is it food? There'll never be enough to fill up your stomach. Is it pleasure? There'll there'll never be enough sexual experiences to gratify you and satisfy you enough. Is it popularity? You'll never accumulate enough possessions to satisfy. Is it pornography? You'll never find a person that's naked enough. Is it control? You'll never have enough authority to satisfy you. Is it leisure? Is it leisure? You will never have enough rest to make your soul feel comfortable. Is it success? You'll never achieve enough to satisfy. Is it freedom? You will never be lawless enough to satisfy your heart. The problem isn't that we want a little bump, we want a little upgrade. The problem is we haven't gone far enough. Why settle? Why settle for somebody else in this room? Why settle for somebody else in the street? Why settle for somebody else on your block? Let's go all the way to God. Let's desire God. Let's take ourselves up into the infinite. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, there is fullness of joy at the right hand of his presence. There's pleasures forevermore. Philippians, right into the church in Philippi, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. He comes back in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice again. I say rejoice. Matthew, chapter 13, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he went away and he sold everything he had to acquire that field. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2 For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We are far too easily pleased. We have a short view on this thing. And God's calling us up. He's calling us out. He's calling us to so much more. We don't need new feelings. We need new hearts that will give us different loves. And it's only available by the gracious God that this story testifies to There's no hope for this kind of change in our lives apart from the grace of God, but our God, our God can help us see our sinful emotions and He can show them to us in His grace. Only God can forgive the guilt of our rebellious emotions and He offers to. Only God can lead us to repentance and infuse us with the power to change and He will. It's what the cross is all about. It's what Easter was for. The good news is that God can do this and God will do this the God who gave us these gifts of emotions, He is eager to come back and to redeem and restore what sin has had a time with. So let's get this verse into our needy hearts. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Preach it into our needy, insecure, desperate souls. On the cross, Jesus lived the opposite of envy for us. Jesus was not resentful of our joy. Jesus was broken because we were in bondage. And Jesus gave up the good things of his life so that we could be saved. How will the Father then not also, if he's given you Jesus, won't he come along? won't he meet all those relational desires in his time and in his way? Won't as you commit yourself to him, won't he actually transform and renew the desires of your hearts? And when we're sitting here with hearts that are pointed in all these different directions, and he says, commit your way to the Lord, and he will transform those desires over time, and we'll find ourselves loving different things in different ways, and eventually feeling differently as a result. Has anyone ever demonstrated that kind of love to you? Has anyone else ever shown you that kind of commitment? It's only God. So we trust Him. We commit our way to Him. and We're going to get around Him. We're going to worship Him. Let's ask Him for it. Father in heaven, we do need your help. Our hearts, they have so many troubles, and we need your help. Father, for someone in this room that came into this room, they're not a Christian and they don't know you, We pray, God, would you reach out? Would you help that person to receive you moving in their hearts? And friend, if that's you right now in the stillness and the quietness of this moment, I just wanna give you an opportunity to respond to God. You don't have to pray a prayer out loud. You don't have to raise a hand. You're not gonna have to stand up. But if that's you from where you're seated, respond to God. I could help narrate it. It would sound something like this, a quiet prayer in your spirit. You would say, God, help me with my sin and my envious heart. Satisfy me. Make me whole. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you've done through the cross. I receive you in Jesus' name. God, we ask all across this room for the rest of us. God, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts so that we would have the strength to comprehend what is the height, what is the breadth, what is the depth, and what is the length of the love which you have loved us through your Son. So, Father, help us to commit our way to you and to worship you now as we stand and sing. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.